On this episode of Blue 58, the wheels of the coaching carousel are beginning to turn. We've got our first concrete news about the Packers plunging into the field of available coaches. What does it mean? And are either of the coaches interviewed this week serious contenders? Plus, what if the Packers decide to hire a defensive coach? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. I am excited to be with you here for this, our final preview podcast of the 2018 season. But John, you're saying this is different from how your preview podcasts usually sound. And to that, I say, yes, you are correct. This is the week of Christmas and the Packers are not playing a meaningful game this weekend, so we're going to go in a bit of a different direction. After all, Joe Philbin himself said this week that Lambeau Field was going to be a ghost town by the end of Monday afternoon. And as such, I think we need to focus on bigger things than this weekend's game with the Lions, a team that is bad playing a bad Packers team in a game that does not help either team at all, except if they lose for draft position, you know all of this already. So let's not focus on that game at all, save for one very brief thing at the end. I have six or seven topics I want to get to today. Almost all of them are coaching related in one some way, shape, or form. And for the first time, we've got some actual coaching stuff that we can talk about. First, I want to make a brief mention of a guy the Packers signed to their practice squad this week uh, because This guy in particular is not particularly interesting, as he uses particular for the 15th time this podcast already, but I think there is a trend we can look at potentially related to this. I'm talking about Evan Bayless, big time, well, not big time, big in terms of size tight end the Packers signed as an undrafted free agent or regular free agent um, just this week to their practice squad. As we've said in previous weeks, there's two kinds of late-season signings. First, there's the one where you want to get a look at a guy in person because you think he might have a future in the league. Teams keep track of everybody all throughout the league, and they, if there's a guy that you were interested in before the draft or as a free agent previously and he comes available again, sometimes you just want to get a look at him in person. So you bring him in late in the year, work him out, sign him to your practice squad, sign him to your 53 whatever, for a couple of weeks and just see what he's got. You can always release him in the offseason or not sign him or whatever. It doesn't matter. And other times you just need a body to fill out your active roster. Last week's signings that we talked about, like Alan Lazard, uh, Capri Bibbs, both fell each into one of those two categories. Lazard seems like a guy the Packers might be, or Lazard, whatever it is, seems like a guy the Packers might be actually interested in long term. Bibbs just seems like a guy they have to have around to fill out the roster. Bayless, the tight end, seems like he's in that latter category. Just need a body to fill out the 53. Not the 53, the 10, the practice squad. You know what I mean. He's 6'5", runs in the upper 240s, which is pretty thin for that size um, as a tight end. Some measurements put him closer to six foot six, so that put him on the fairly light side as a tight end on that size. He ran a four eight seven in the forty, which is not terrible, but not great. Uh, he did just seventeen reps on the bench press, has a nine six broad jump. Neither of those numbers are particularly outstanding, especially the seventeen, and he had poor shuttle and three cone time, so not particularly agile. 
So you're wondering, at least I am, what's the upside here? I think it's a little bit hard to say because as we've seen all season long, Brian Gutekunst has tended to target those players with athletic upside to fill out the practice squad and the lower end of the roster. And Bayless doesn't seem to have a lot of that tremendous athletic upside. But I think if you really want to look at this from an extremely broad perspective, you could make an argument that this is the Packers trying to do whatever they can to figure out the tight end position. I think it's fairly clear here on December 27th, as I record this 2018, that the Packers tight end group has not worked out how they hoped it would this season. You've got Jimmy Graham, Mercedes Lewis, and Lance Kendricks all on the roster at the start of the year, along with Robert Tanyan. But of those four, only one of the four is really any sort of long-term prospect. In fact, I think only Robert Tanyan at this point seems to have better than like a 50-50 shot of being on the roster at the start of next year. But despite that, the Packers have continued to do whatever they can to fill out that sort of either tight end or giant wide receiver position, since that's kind of how they use their tight ends periodically. They've got Robert Tanyan. They've got Ethan Wolf, who, although he was injured, was not released from the practice squad. He was moved to the practice squad version of injured reserve, which is interesting. And now they've brought in Bayless, another tight end. So they've got six bodies in the building at tight end, and probably more on the way. They've also got a bunch of giant-sized receivers, including Alan Lazard, a guy a lot of people thought of as a tight end leading into the draft this spring. Interesting stuff. I think there is some evidence here that the Packers are just trying to do whatever they can to figure out their tight end position. But nobody really cares about tight ends here at the end of the 2018 calendar year and Packers season. The next time we talk, the Packers are going to have officially wrapped up their 2018 campaign, and it will have been, it will be Black Monday. So it's going to be really hard to do a preview podcast or a, a recap podcast. It's probably going to be really short. In fact, we may want to wait until uh, until Tuesday to um, post an episode because so many things could happen on Monday. But in the meantime. It's going to be all coaching, and it's going to be all coaching for a long time because as we've talked about in the not-too-distant past, Mark Murphy says he wants to, to take his time on this. He wants to explore all the options, and it wouldn't be a surprise, I think, for the Packers to interview 8, 9, 10, maybe a dozen people. They're just going to try a bunch of stuff and see what sticks, and I think that's a pretty good approach. Get a lot of names out there, get a lot of people in the building, talk to a lot of people face-to-face, and just see what you like. This is a decision you've got to get right. You might as well take your time and talk to a lot of people and get it as right as you possibly can. That process officially started this week. News broke late yesterday, late two days ago, and when you're hearing this, the Packers interviewed two men for their available head coaching job this week. They talked to Jim Caldwell and Chuck Pagano, both, oddly, former head coaches of the Indianapolis Colts. Let's talk very briefly about both of these guys. You can find a more in-depth breakdown at thepowersweep.com. We've been previewing anybody remotely connected to the Packers job as their names have come up, and even before some of those names have come up. Um, But Caldwell in particular, I think, is the interesting one of the two here. Caldwell, I think, gets a little bit of a bad reputation as just that extremely serious-looking guy on the sideline. 
but he's probably better than you remember as a head coach and really just as a coach in general because he has had a lot of success throughout his tenure in college, in the NFL, at a variety of positions in the NFL, even as a head coach. His career began in the early, or well, in the, in the late 70s after a playing career at the University of Iowa, and he bounced around the world of college football for more than two decades after that. He had a long stint coaching at Penn State with Joe, Joe Paterno, then he was the head coach for Wake Forest for eight years. It didn't go particularly well, but after that stint, he signed on with Tony Dungy and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for Dungy's last year in Tampa before following Dungy to Indianapolis. He was kind of Dungy's right-hand man during the extent of their time together in Indianapolis, won a Super Bowl together, and then Caldwell took over for Dungy after Dungy retired. He was real good early on in Indianapolis won 14 games his first season as the the Colts head coach, but it got worse from there. 10 and 6 the second year, 2 and 14 the third year, and it all kind of falls apart from there. But he rejoined the Baltimore Ravens, helped them win a Super Bowl in 2012 by taking over as their offensive coordinator at midseason, and then was their full-time offensive coordinator for the next season got the head coaching job with the Lions in 2014 and was fairly middle of the road there. He had three winning seasons in four years, but it was never really spectacular. And most of those years were kind of defined by the Lions falling apart down the stretch, most notably that 2016 season, which culminated with the de facto NFC North championship to pop uh, to finish off the Packers running of the table that year. The Packers, of course, won. The Lions did end up going to the playoffs, but lost to uh, the Cowboys. I believe it was the Cowboys. No, it was the Seahawks that year in 2016. That's all beside the point. I think the larger question on Caldwell is how comfortable you are with a retread. And I would be, I think, broadly speaking, against the idea of hiring a head coach who has kind of run his course with other teams before. I think the Packers are in a position where they need some new thinking, just some new energy, just kind of have to start from scratch. And hiring a guy who's been through this entire process, hiring, firing, hiring, firing before, doesn't seem like the best way to inject that new energy into your franchise. But that said, if you're going to hire a guy who's been in the job before, you could do worse than a guy who has two Super Bowl rings, albeit not as a head coach. Caldwell, therefore, may be a little bit better option than it might seem at first blush. He's hardly an exciting option. I will grant that, you know, eight days a week. But it seems like you could do worse than Jim Caldwell. In our kind of head coaching candidate preview on Caldwell, I wrote that he may not be the right choice, but I don't know if he's necessarily a bad choice either, if that makes sense. I think there is a difference between making a bad choice and making the a wrong choice. He, I, he may not be ultimately the guy who solves all the Packers' problems, but he probably won't create, if he would be hired, a lot of new problems. Here is one other aspect of this that's hard to not talk about 
without a degree of cynicism. But since the Packers have a head coaching vacancy, they do have to interview a minority candidate. And Jim Caldwell does fulfill those requirements. I have a a long list of complicated feelings about those rules. Um, Obviously, as a, a white guy, I don't have maybe the same perspective as some other people do. So my input on it is probably of limited value, but it it is a rule. It's a thing that exists. The Packers have to comply with it. And by interviewing Caldwell, they do comply with it. So I think we can say all of those things fairly safely without saying something inaccurate or insensitive. Kind of just is what it is. And it is a reality that needs to be addressed in this process. So Caldwell, while maybe not the most exciting option, is an option and probably not the worst one available. I cannot say quite the same thing, though, about Chuck Pagano. While Jim Caldwell may be not as bad as you remember and quite good in some aspects, Chuck Pagano seems as exactly as uninspiring as you as you remember. He had a fairly, well, an extremely underwhelming stint with the Indianapolis Colts. He's 53 and 43 in his lifetime as a head coach. And just generally not, not super great. Now, there were some problems with the Colts front office during his tenure there. And as long as Jim Ursay is running part of your organization, I feel like there are going to be some problems with your front office. But Colts GM Ryan Grigson was not was not good. And things didn't really improve after he was fired, but Pagano did not work well with him. And it seems like the Packers would have a more stable situation than that. But Pagano is just an utterly uninspiring candidate. Just completely. And the reason I say that is because of a personal experience I have with Chuck Pagano as a a potential head coach. Um, After I left radio in Wisconsin, I worked briefly for WIBC in Indianapolis in 2016. And 2016, of course, follows 2015, but the 2015 Colts season ended in early 2016. So we have to talk about in 2016, though it still relates to the 2015 season. But in early 2016, it seemed like a pretty much foregone conclusion in the Indianapolis community and in the news and sports community that he was going to be let go. He's just an uninspiring guy. The Colts just seemed like a directionless franchise under him and just seemed like an utter foregone conclusion that he was going to be gone. So much so that we at WIBC worked with our sister station, WFNI, the Colts' official radio station, to cover or to craft a coverage plan for his firing. We were ready to go on a Chuck Pagano firing story. And when he got called in for an interview of some kind, nobody knew about what, with Jim Ursay, we had our coverage ready to go for his firing. It was going to happen. But instead, what did the Colts do? They extended his contract. Nobody knew that was even a possibility, and it caught everybody in our newsroom off guard. 
Nobody anticipated that he would keep his job, much less get an extension. And we had a pretty good amount of information that led us to believe that he was going to be fired. This was a town that should have seen everything there was to see on the positive about Chuck Pagano. His battle with cancer, the way that he had had some success with the Colts. And everybody just could not believe that he didn't get fired after one 8-8 eight eight season. If that's not a team that, or a town or city or whatever that should be behind you, what would be? And if that's how down that they on you that they are, that they are surprised when you don't get fired after an 8-8 eight eight season, what does that say about you as, as sort of an inspiring public figure? That was, it was just befuddling how, or just amazing how befuddled everybody was that Pagano kept his job and got that extension. So to bring a guy like that into the Packers organization would be extremely, I think, disappointing. And I hope that the Packers are just trying to do some due diligence on on the people that are out there as they approach this process. I hope he's not a serious candidate. Now, it could be that seeing these names come up in the media leads one to believe that Joe Philbin is completely out of this process. But I think that would be a little bit premature. I think Joe Philbin knows that he has been in for a fight if he indeed is interested in being the Packers' next head coach. And this is just part of that fight. But as I have argued all along, Joe Philbin has a unique advantage. And we can't let the beginning of this coach search, which is just now beginning in earnest, pass by without mentioning some of these things again. And we won't rehash the entire thing because we just covered this about five episodes ago, six episodes ago. Check out episode 137 if you want to want to see the full discussion here. But Andrew Brandt of Sports Illustrated wrote a little bit of insider perspective on how the Packers might handle this coaching search uh, based on his long connections to the Packers. Basically, he, and I think fairly, posits that the Packers are a conservative organization that value a lot of things like family values, emotional intelligence, generally just being the sort of nice person that you like to have around in their head coaching candidate, in their in whoever holds the position of head coach with the Packers. And I think Philbin checks a lot of those boxes. On top of that, he has the added advantage of being in the building right now, essentially undergoing an ongoing job interview. And how the team has responded to Philbin has to be a point in their favor. They've played relatively well under Philbin. Um, They seem to have more energy and more focus. And the Packers are doing some more creative things on offense under Philbin than we saw previously from under Mike McCarthy. So I don't have a whole lot of stuff to add to that Philbin perspective, but I just don't think he's quite out of this yet. And if you look at how the players talk about him, there's clearly some kind of a connection there. Now, they may just be being nice and talking up a guy who's been put in a bit of a tough spot, but there's a chance it's legit too. And if it's at all legit you have to think that Philbin might have a shot at this job. Let's talk for a second about some college coaches because those have been the bulk of our previews so far. A lot of people are focused on college coaches. 
because that kind of ticks a lot of the boxes that uh, I think popular media and social media and stuff like that have centered on with the Packers. Namely, they want a young coach, an offensive-minded coach, a coach that's been successful elsewhere, and most of those characteristics tend to be reflected in college coaches. Well, I think we can take three college coaches pretty safely off of our list. Albert Breer of Sports Illustrated weighed in on Pat Fitzgerald and David Shaw this week. I'll read you what he's had to say on those two guys right here in his recent uh, Monday morning game plan or whatever they're calling the the big long post they do every Monday at Sports Illustrated now that uh, Peter King has moved on. So here's what he had to say about Fitzgerald and Shaw. Quote, two college names that I've learned to group together while we're there, Northwestern's Pat Fitzgerald and Stanford's David Shaw. Both have won in places that have unique challenges. Both are coaching at their alma mater. Both are well compensated, loved, and happy in regions where they have deep roots in. Both can win eight or nine games a year with their college teams and be celebrated for it. And both have garnered more than a little interest from the NFL. That's a long way of saying a lot of NFL teams love those guys, but it'd take a lot to lure them to leave what they've got now. Maybe the presence of ex-Northwestern AD Mark Murphy in Green Bay, Murphy hired Fitzgerald as head coach at NU, will be enough to coach Fitzgerald to the NFL. I just wouldn't count on it. End quote. So Breer basically is laying out there what we have argued from the beginning on these two guys and college coaches in particular. These guys have fairly cushy jobs. They get paid a lot for what they do. The bar for success is a lot lower at some of these programs. There's not really a great reason for them to leave these jobs. And Breer seems to believe that's true about both Fitzgerald and Shaw. The same can be said of Lincoln Riley. And it's not somebody speculating about Lincoln Riley. We get this same perspective from Lincoln Riley himself. He tells the New York Post that he's pretty much not interested in the NFL right now. I'll read you the entire quote. Quote, I can't tell you how I'm going to feel in 10 years, but no, not right now. He said when asked about his interest in coaching in the NFL, he continues, if I wasn't at one of the elite programs in the country, maybe, but no, I'm very happy where I am right now. If it was 20, 30 years ago where there were some major differences, maybe the way the college game has evolved financially, it's a lot better situation now when you compare it to NFL teams. We're at a place where we're happy and we don't take that for granted. I love coaching at Oklahoma, love coaching college football, end quote. Basically, in short for Riley, the money is too good at NFL to take the risk of leaving to a place where he may not be appreciated quite the same way. So I think you can fairly safely cross Lincoln Riley off your wish list, as well as Pat Fitzgerald and probably David Shaw, too. It's unfortunate, but that's how these things work. One more quick perspective on this coaching search. Generally, we've talked about the Packers pursuing an offensive coach as sort of a, a foregone conclusion. And I think there is something to that idea, but what if the Packers hire a defensive coach? I get it. Generally in the past, the Packers have picked offensive coaches. The team is built for offense right now. Aaron Rodgers is their most important and highest paid player. And he plays on offense, as you might have heard. And on the whole, the league has generally skewed toward the offense. But very quickly, let's talk about giving a defensive philosophy 
a second look as your head coach. So I think it's safe to say that the NFL is a league of corrections and outmaneuvering. If you're not correcting based on trends or trying to outmaneuver people, it seems like you're doing it wrong. And chances are you're not going to be able to win without zigging a little bit where everybody else is trying to zag. And given the explosion of offense that we've seen in the NFL over the last year or two, it's not impossible that snagging a high-level defensive coach could be that move. Here are some potential benefits, in fact. By hiring a defensive coach as your head coach, your defense becomes a focus instead of an afterthought. And in Green Bay, how long has it been since defense was really an equal partner with the offense? Probably since 2009 or 2010. I mean, there were some good defenses in there in 2014 and 2015. But the the last time it really felt like those two were on equal footing was, was probably 10 years ago. You could also have more one-on-one coaching with the person who's actually in charge of the offense and one-on-one time with Aaron Rodgers. As a head coach, your def- your dis- uh, attention is inherently divided. And I think we saw some of that with Mike McCarthy. He was obviously focused on offense, but on game days, you can't really say it had 100% of his attention. He had to focus on defense. He had to watch what was going on with special teams. You know, if there's a challenge or something, he has to be the guy watching out for those things on both sides of the ball. So the Packers come off the field on offense, and what does Mike McCarthy do? Well, he doesn't go meet with Aaron Rodgers. He doesn't sit down and talk with anybody. He just goes right on coaching like a head coach, watching the defense, seeing what they're doing. And I think it leads to a little bit of disjointed interaction between the head coach and one of your two most important units on the field, offense and defense. Duh. Obviously, it's one of those two. Special teams is important, but it's not one of the two most important. Anyway, there are also some potential drawbacks to going the defensive route, I think. There's a case to be made fairly strongly that hiring a defensive coach could be being different just to be different. While it's true that you do have to zig while other people are zagging, there is a reason that so many teams are focusing on offense. It's working. And the NFL is changing its rules to make things easier for offense. They make a rules change every year that makes the offense's life easier. So focusing on offense is not a dumb thing to do because the NFL is just making it easier for offense. Secondly, the hurdles for success on defense are just so high. You've got these rules changes, sure, but it also takes so many more players so many more good players to be really successful on defense, and your margin of error is so slim. What kind of return are you really going to get by spending so many of your resources on that side of the ball? Say the Packers hire Vic Fangio, just to pick a defensive name out of a hat, and say he is able to do the same things philosophically with the Packers' defense that he did with the Bears' defense. The Packers still need a lot of new talent on the defensive side of the ball to be competitive. We've seen a lot of good things from Mike Penton this year, but the Packers just haven't had the players there. 
And that's assuming the Packers are able to stay healthy on that side of the ball. One of the big reasons the Bears have been able to do so well on defense this year is they haven't gotten hurt. And that's not a shot at the Bears. That's, if anything, a a pat on the back. Good for you guys. You've stayed healthy. That's great. That's hard to do. They've been able to string together a lot of success because they've had all their best players out there all the time. And they need all 11 of those top-end guys on defense on the field to be that great defense. Look even in this last Packers-Bears game how close the margin was. I mean, the Bears played a great game on defense that day. And still, if Jimmy Graham doesn't drop that pass, if Aaron Rodgers is a little bit more on target, the Packers are three points away from tying that game. That's with Mitchell Trubisky playing a great game. That's with the Bears defense playing at the high level that they've played at all season long. That's all you get from investing that much on defense? Vic Fangio, multiple high draft picks, the Khalil Mack trade, the Khalil Mack contract. That's all you get? That's all a top-end defense gets you? That's a big ask. And that's kind of how you're committing to structuring your team if you're going with a defensive guy as your head coach, I think at least. So there is a potential drawback there too. But I do think it's an an approach that shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. While I've got you here, we've spent at least a part of the last three or four preview shows focusing on a young player. And we didn't get a chance to answer this question from a reader on air a couple weeks ago when it came in. So I want to take a second to do that here because Josh Jones is still a young player. And uh, and listener Chris asks a good question about Josh Jones that I will read for you now and then answer based in part on, uh, on some insight from uh, Michael Cohen of The Athletic. So Chris asks, excuse me. Chris asks, it seems to me that Jones has got by thus far on promise, a promise which unfortunately has been largely unfulfilled with the exception of one game last year against the Bengals. I know that he was agitating for more playing time earlier in the season. He eventually got his wish with the departures of Clinton Dix and Whitehead, as well as with the injuries to the safety corps. I suppose you would want your players to be keen to play, but for me, he hasn't transformed words into actions on the field. He came as a second-round pick with lots of people projecting him as a game-changing hybrid safety linebacker, but he has certainly disappointed me so far. Am I being unfair to Josh Jones? What do you think? Does he have a future in the Gutekunst era? That is the end of his question. I bring this up because not... This week, but last week, Michael Cohen of The Athletic wrote a pretty extensive breakdown on Jones in in one of his pieces for TheAthletic.com. And if you're an Athletic member, I recommend going and checking that out. If you're not an Athletic member, I don't know if I can wholeheartedly recommend a subscription, although they run a lot of specials. So if you can get it for cheap, I would go and do that. So, uh, but I'm not sure how much you're missing out on if you don't. All that to say... Um, there are some good Packers stuff on there. So he points out um, that Jones has been up and down no matter where he's played this year. If he plays safety, he does some good things, does some bad things. If he plays linebacker, he does some good things, he does some bad things. But he concludes by saying this, 
And there were times when Jones played safety only to lapse in coverage at crucial moments, evidenced by the 13-yard touchdown pass to Trey Burton in which Jones and cornerback Tony Brown had poor spacing in zone coverage. Here's the rub. At this point in his career, with roughly a thousand snaps to his name, Jones shouldn't be making these kinds of mistakes. That's why it's increasingly difficult to find out where he fits on the field, end quote. I think that is largely the bottom line on Jones. He should be playing better than he is at this point. Here is my more extensive opinion on Jones. I think Chris's perspective on him is fair. He's got a lot of upside, and fans and coaches were probably excited about him pretty fairly heading into his rookie season, and he really hasn't put it together so far. He has done some good things, but he has done also a lot of bad things, and even if his the body of work this year has been pretty good, I think you're shooting for more than pretty good with a second-round pick. As far as the future goes, I think there is plenty of room for Josh Jones on the roster. He's got two big things going for him, even if he isn't very good. He's young and he's cheap. He just turned 24 years old like a couple weeks ago, and he's only going to count $2.5 million against the cap over the next two years combined. Even if he's really not good, it's hard to let the kind of athleticism that Jones has walk out the door. You could let him just play out that rookie deal and see if he ever figures something out, but even if he doesn't figure it out, you're not throwing a lot of money out the door to let him try to figure it out. But on the flip side, sometimes guys like Josh Jones can fall through the cracks a little bit when there's a regime change. And if you hadn't noticed, we're in the midst of one in Green Bay. Sometimes coaches want to have, quote unquote, their guys around. And that means everybody from the old staff has got to go. And that includes players. That could be Josh Jones. But with his athleticism, with his cheap contract, I don't think the Packers are going to be eager to move on. They still may, but I don't think Jones is in danger right now, although he has been underwhelming. So I've got for you on this particular episode. We'll see you in the great beyond after the end of the 2018 season this Sunday. Enjoy that game. I get to watch it on my real TV. I don't have to stream it off some quasi-illegal site. Not that I would ever do that or recommend it. You can find us, as you always do, at thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter. Reach out if you would be so kind at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com or by clicking the contact link at thepowersweep.com. Support us, if you would, via patreon.com slash thepowersweep or by buying one of our fine t-shirts from teespring.com. Click the shop link at thepowersweep.com to find your way there. And as always, the freest and easiest way to support what we do is by leaving a review on iTunes. There is no pressure to do so, but it does help more people find the show. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback or thoughts or questions you give us help us make this entire operation better, and it makes all of us smarter Packers fans. And as I frequently say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I am John Meerdink, your host. We will see you next time on Blue 58.